This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for Thursday, February 24th, 2022. This week's Intego Mac Podcast security headlines include The Mac's T2 security chip has been hacked, and now your Mac's passwords can be cracked. What you should know about a potentially serious vulnerability. When was the last time you looked in your spam folder? Are you confident your email provider will filter only the bad messages? We've got some tips for securely redacting personal information in the stuff you send out electronically into the world. And we've got a look at the wireless mesh system you might already have running in your home. Now, here are the hosts of the Indigo Mac Podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Indigo's chief security analyst, Josh Long. Good morning, Josh. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, Kirk? I'm doing really well. I had a really weird phone call this afternoon. Oh, yeah? My phone rang, and I saw the number, and I could tell it was a mobile phone number in the UK because there was no country code, and it started with 07. That's how mobile phone numbers work. And I pick up the phone, I say, hello. Takes a couple seconds, and I hear someone with an Eastern European accent say, asking my name, and said he was calling from the investigation department of blockchain. And I did a double take and I hung up because obviously I don't even know what that is. Now, I know we're talking before the show. You said you would have tried to figure out a way to record the call and see what they were going to ask for. My guess is it's one of these scams where they're going to tell you how to recover, you know, cryptocurrency that you've lost since so many people lose their Bitcoin. Mm, Yeah. Investigation Department of Blockchain. Uh, that's, that's interesting. So, I mean, obviously they're, they're preying on, on people who maybe have heard of blockchain and maybe don't know a whole lot about it and don't know that a blockchain is a technology and not necessarily like a company. Well, a Microsoft is also a technology, isn't it? Microsoft. Well, well, (laughs) I, I, and anyway, I thought it was kind of funny, but it, it's just a reminder of all the scams there are. Uh, you know, people in the U.S. tell me they get robocalls and scams and all that over and over and constantly. Yeah. We don't get them here often. I get a few a week. And in fact, 20 minutes later, I got a call. Then my iPhone told me it was coming from Indonesia. And I answered that one and I heard clickety click and then it went off. It could have been someone calling a wrong number, right? That, that knew someone in the U.K. and got the wrong number. But- I don't get that many of these. If I get one or two a week, that's the most. You know, most of the time when I get a pretty much any time that I get a call from a number that I don't recognize, I just let it go to voicemail. And in in fact, I I hit the power button to silence it. And sometimes I just hit the power button twice on my phone to silence it and also hang up on them. So it'll like force it to go directly to voicemail. And, you know, nine times out of 10, at least nobody ever bothers to leave a voicemail or some of the time I might get a a message uh, from somebody that's obviously just a, an ad or a scam. And it usually is cut off because, you know, the recording started as soon as it heard a voice on the, you know, the recorded message and all that. So it's uh, that's how I usually avoid it, but maybe I should start picking up these calls because maybe I might get some interesting out of it. You never know. You might have something entertaining. There's a weird thing that people in the UK do. So if my doctor's office calls me, they hide their number and it shows up as unknown caller. And I know a lot of Americans do like you to just don't answer the phone, but you don't want to do that here because there are too many people who do 
hide their their actual identities like that. I think they do that because they don't want you to know the specific phone number for the doctor rather than the switchboard. But I, I've seen that from hospitals, any kind of medical thing, banks will do that. So you can't, when you see unknown caller, it's more likely to be something real than something fake here. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I occasionally I have seen legitimate businesses hide their phone number for some unknown reason, but more often than not, it when I see a number that I don't recognize, it's it's it comes from usually my own area code, and sometimes, and, and this is actually even more suspicious when it's my own area code plus the next three digits are the same as my number, so the only digits that are different are the last four. That's really suspicious because now I know that not only is it from my area code, but it also shows that it's from the same carrier and the same city as my self-provider. And that's really, really suspicious. Well, here in the UK, all mobile numbers start with 07. So it's not like there's an area code. There's an area code for landline numbers, but for mobile numbers, anywhere in the country, it's all going to start with 07. When I lived in France, it was all 06. And the, the, there is no other area code. So you, you see a number, you have no idea where it's coming from. That's actually pretty helpful that it's designed that way so you can Im immediately tell that it's a mobile number. In the United States, it's not set up that way. And you just have simple area codes and it, it tells you geographically where that phone number theoretically is based. But what it doesn't tell you is whether it's mobile, landline, if it's a voice over IP. There are ways that you can actually find that out. Um, there are apps that you can use to, to look up a phone number and find out, you know, a little bit of information about it. And usually you can find out the carrier if if it is a mobile number or if it's a landline or voice over IP service or whatever it may be. But if you're in, let's say, Cleveland, Ohio, and you get a phone number and you've got a number that's in Cleveland, Ohio, and then you move to Albuquerque, do you keep the same number? And then the more people move, the less reliable that's going to be. Yeah, I think most people in the United States tend to do that. I know an awful lot of people who have, you know, lived in a lot of different states and a lot of, you know, parts of of California even and have different area codes based on where some place that they used to live and they didn't want to change their phone number because, you know, then they'd have to start from scratch, they'd have to notify all their contacts that they changed their number and, you know, they want to keep in touch with people that they've known for years. So, uh, yeah, it's be it's becoming increasingly common in the U.S. at least, and probably other places too, to just keep a, an existing phone number. Okay, a public service announcement. I've noticed something in the past couple of months that I get contacted by people for some of the work that I do who have Gmail accounts, and I'll reply to them and I'll never hear from them. And I found out that what's happening, because I contacted one person on Twitter who had written me by email asking me for some advice, and I wrote him back and he didn't reply. So I, I hit him up on Twitter and he said, oh yeah, your message was in my spam folder. Now, this has been going on for a couple months and I've been asking several people and they're seeing this more and more. In fact, one person said that even his Gmail emails go into other people's spam folders. So Google did something different with the way that they check domains for spam. And there are a couple of acronyms, SPF and DMARC, that domains can sort of register themselves as not being spam. But what surprises me is the number of people who do not check their spam folders in Gmail. And please, if you have any contact with real people, check your spam folder because you're going to get 
with you have an email in your spam folder. And if you ignore it, I mean, particularly, you know, I'm talking about people who might want to work with me in certain ways, right? On podcasts, for example. And if you're contacting someone and then you're not able to reply because you don't check your spam folder, well, check your spam folder. Yeah. Good advice. I actually very rarely check my spam folders for all of my personal email accounts. I have far too many email Guilty accounts. as charged. <laughs> yeah. So so that that is good advice. And, and by the way, I'll mention this since Gmail is one of the most popular email providers. They clear out your spam folder after 30 days. So uh, anything that's been in there longer than that will get deleted. And so you may not know that you missed some important email unless you're regularly checking your spam folder. So make it part of your maybe weekly routine to, you know, or, or calendarize it if it helps you to remember to do that. But definitely check your spam folder. I would say at least once a week just to make sure you're not missing anything really important. And if you use your own domain for email, there are some things you need to set up. We'll have an article on the Indigo Mac security blog with a quick overview of SPF and DMARC. You may find, however, that even if you set these up, it won't resolve the problem. So it's basically everyone who uses Gmail, check your spam folders. We have a new security vulnerability. What would a Intego podcast be without a security vulnerability, right? This is a T2 Mac security vulnerability. Passwords can now be cracked, 9 to 5 Mac says. And this is actually quite worrisome, even though it doesn't affect the new M1 Macs. But any Mac with a T2 security chip, and this goes back to what, about 2018 through 2020, is vulnerable to this. And your passwords are easy to crack now. Yeah. One would hope generally that technologies like this would take a lot longer than, you know, a few years <laughs> to be cracked. So it's a little bit unfortunate that, uh, you know, the T2 chips only been been around, like you said, since 2018. So it's not really that long that it's been out. Now, the M1 Max don't use the T2 chip anymore because they have the same technologies that were in the T2 chip integrated with the M1 system on a chip. So they don't actually need to have a separate processor for some of those additional security functions that the T2 chip was used for in a number of Macs that were released from 2018 to 2020. So what if you do happen to have one of those Macs? And there is a list uh, that's in this 9to5Mac article of all of those Macs that are affected. But basically, if you know your Mac has a T2 chip, it's affected. So what's the problem? The problem is that if you have a weak password, it's now possible to brute force that password to get into your Mac. That's really the main problem here. A company called Passware was able to crack passwords and decrypt FileVault protected drives on these older Macs. And they're using GPU acceleration. They're using, in other words, the graphics processor in your Mac to achieve brute force attacks of, they say, literally tens of thousands of passwords per second. So what can you do to protect yourself? Just use a longer, more complex password. That's all there is to it. If if you're using a really complex password, then brute force attacks are really not going to mean that much. And they're not very likely to be able to break into your accounts, even if someone gets physical access to your Mac. Okay. We talked a couple months ago about a journalist who was being prosecuted in Missouri for looking at the source code of a web page and discovering that it had social security numbers in it. And we kind of snickered because, well, 
you don't put that in a web page, and it's not hard to view the source code of a web page. And the governor of Missouri called this person a hacker in quotes. He's not going to be prosecuted because they looked at this and they realized the governor really didn't know what he was talking about. Yeah. So this is a good thing. Like we kind of expected that we would see this outcome from this legal case um, because, you know, viewing source, there's literally like one a one key press on on a on a keyboard right or one menu selection is all it takes to pull up view source it, it's it's not hacking and so this was a good decision and in addition this data had been there for 10 years yeah well that that's a little bit shocking like how on earth does data like that now granted it was encoded it wasn't just in in plain text but man i can't even believe that that happened. Some data that obviously was not web page code, this big chunk of it, this big blob was embedded in this source code and nobody thought anything about this for 10 years. It's crazy. Well, we'll we'll link to an article on Ars Technica, which goes into some detail about how old this vulnerability is, how Microsoft had warned against it, et cetera, et cetera. It's just a cautionary tale. Speaking of cautionary tales, people often redact text in screenshots. Now, I do it all the time when I do screenshots for articles on the Intercom Mac Security blog because they may have my phone number, email address, or other personal information. Some people do this by pixelating the text, and you can see that it looks like just random pixels. But it turns out that there is a tool called Depix that can depixelize it, and it kind of like looks at the way things would look if they're pixelated and then works backwards. So the the first point is don't ever use pixelization to redact text. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's, that's a pretty simple solution to that. I've always kind of suspected that there would be ways to reverse this, this pixelation thing. Even the naked eye can often kind of tell what is going on behind the pixels <laughs> when somebody tries to pixelize something. You definitely want to make sure that you're using something a lot better than just simple pixelation if you want to redact something. So what I do is I use an app called Acorn for all my screenshots, and I use what's called a Gaussian blur, and I blur things very well, and that's not – you won't be able to figure that out. But one thing that most people don't know is that Apple's preview app, the PDF viewer, has a tool for redaction. So if you open a PDF, you go to the tools menu and you choose redact, you get a crosshair and you just drag that over text and it's permanently gone. It's black. In fact, when you open a PDF and you choose the redact tool, you'll see a dialog that says redacted content is permanently removed. Any content marked for redaction will be permanently deleted when the document is closed. And that's important. It's not that they're drawing over it in black. It's that they're deleting it and replacing it with black. Now, there was a legal document a couple years ago that came out and that someone had redacted a lot of stuff just by basically highlighting it in black. And I remember some reporters were just selecting all the text and copying it to see what was underneath. So when Preview does this, it actually deletes the content. Yeah, that, and that's really important. I know that there have been a lot of people in the past who were trying to redact content by just, like you were saying, drawing a black box over it. So it's nice that Apple finally included a proper redaction feature within the Preview app. Okay, we're going to take a break, and then we're going to talk about some nifty new HomeKit devices. Protecting your online security and privacy has never been more important than it is today. 
Intego has been proudly protecting Mac users since 1997. And our latest Mac protection suite includes the tools you need to stay protected in 2022. Indigo's Mac Premium Bundle X9 includes Virus Barrier, the world's best Mac anti-malware protection. Net Barrier for powerful inbound and outbound firewall security. Personal Backup will keep your important files safe from ransomware. And much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Best of all, it's compatible with macOS Monterey and the latest Apple Silicon Macs. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intego.com today. When you're ready to buy, Indigo Mac Podcast listeners can get a special discount by using the link in this episode's show notes at podcast.intigo.com. That's podcast.intigo.com. And click on this episode to find the special discount link exclusively for Intigo Mac Podcast listeners. Intigo, world-class protection and utility software for Mac users, made by the Mac security experts. Okay, before we get to HomeKit, there's a story that came out. This is about a week old, but I found this really interesting. Opera, the Opera web browser, now allows emoji-only web addresses. And I thought of this, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, my website is smiley face martini glass Christmas tree. Do you know how many (laughs) smiley face emojis there are? What if the person gets the wrong smiley face? And I'm just imagining people reserving domains for smiley face martini glass Christmas tree with every different emoji to use as phishing. Oh, boy. This is just what could possibly go wrong, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, my goodness. It's it's complicated Isn't enough. a lot of computer security an answer to the question, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. So, I mean, Okay. There's already problems with homoglyph or homograph attacks um, where you can use lookalike characters in a domain or in other parts of a, of a web address that make it possible for somebody to spoof a website you know, and do it using you know, legitimate functionality of the browser. I've, I've been doing some experimentation with how different browsers handle these different um, homoglyphs. And it turns out that different browsers treat them different ways. And so what appears a certain way in one browser will look differently in another browser. Now that's just using standard Unicode characters. And now we're getting into more complex things like emojis. And and as you said, there's there can be a number of variations on different emojis. Now, you mentioned that there are separate smiley face emojis, and that's true. Um, but there's also lots of variations on emojis, for example, to add skin color or different hairstyles or genders or different things like that. And so you could, you know, have a web address that looks very similar to another for this reason, too, uh, just by virtue of of the emoji being slightly different. So please, please don't. (laughs) If if you're starting a website, please don't do an emoji only web address. Um, First of all, it's probably only going to work in the Opera browser for now anyway. And uh, it, it's going to look pretty weird in any other browser. But this is just, ugh, please, why? Yeah. Why are they doing this? Okay, I've been experimenting with the smart home. 
And now we've talked about smart home stuff for a while, about HomeKit, the home app, and I've got some lights and I've got some cameras and things. And I discovered something really interesting. There's something new called Thread. It's a technology that works with HomeKit and it's it's an interesting combination of low energy Bluetooth and it allows you to create a mesh network of devices that talk to each other. So at the basic level, I got two devices. I got an Eve Weather, which is an outdoor weather sensor, and I got an Eve Energy, which is a smart plug. Now, the outdoor weather sensor is a device that just sends data, right? And it's going to tell me the temperature and the humidity and the barometer, and that's fine. It's an endpoint. The EVE Energy is a router that it collects data, so it can tell you how much power is being used. You can turn it on and off if you want to, you know, turn off devices. But it's also a router in a mesh network for other thread devices. Now, what's really interesting is the border router, which is what connects the thread network to the rest of your Wi-Fi network. So the endpoint and the router, they're all Bluetooth, and the border router is a combination of Bluetooth and Wi-Fi. So what's really interesting is that there are only two border router devices available, and they are both Apple devices. It's the latest Apple TV 4K and the HomePod Mini. Now, do you remember that presentation of the HomePod Mini with that set of the house with the different rooms? And I remember when we were talking about it afterwards, and I was saying, well, this is interesting. They're going to the smart home. While, while you'll find that Thread is mentioned in the tech specs, Apple has never really talked about this. This is something that's coming in really slowly, and it's definitely going to change the way smart home devices work. Right. I don't think they mentioned Thread at all in the keynote. I, I'd never really heard of Thread until you, you brought this up recently and we were kind of discussing it. So one question that I have is how how is Thread any different from, you know, like, like there's all sorts of technologies related to IoT, right? There's Zigbee and Z-Wave and HomeKit. And so like, how does Thread relate to these other technologies? So one of the promises of Thread is that you won't need uh, brand-specific hubs anymore. So I have a bunch of Philips Hue lights. And while you can turn them on, if you're within Bluetooth range of a light bulb, you can't do them remotely unless you have the Philips Hue hub. So Thread is creating a, a mesh network that's going to work as a hub for all of these devices. So if you're using HomeKit, you need a HomeKit hub. And a HomeKit hub is a an Apple TV an iPad or a HomePod or a HomePod mini. And this is something that happens automatically. If you've got smart home devices, it automatically turns on a HomeKit hub and it turns on backup HomeKit hubs if you have enough devices. But what's interesting now is with Thread, you won't need these brand specific hubs. You won't necessarily need their apps. You, you still need their apps to configure devices and add them to your network. But after that, you can control everything through the home app. But even more is the fact that this creates its own network for smart home devices that doesn't interfere with Wi-Fi, right? It's a different frequency. If you have two or three of these devices that work as routers, then you can have endpoints anywhere you want in your home. Now, I wanted to put my weather sensor in a certain location in my garden that's in the shade because you don't want your weather sensor in the sun. I had a previous weather station from NetAtmo, which worked okay, but on the north side of my house, at certain times of year, there would be sun in the afternoon. So I couldn't always find a place in the shade at which it would connect to its base station, which worked on a radio frequency connection. So I took my weather sensor and I put it about 15 meters, say 40 feet away from my home. 
and I came inside, it immediately connected. And I didn't do anything to connect it. It was just connecting to my Apple TV, which was on the top floor of the house on that side of the house. But what's even better is I took that Eve Energy plug in my office, so on the other side of the house, through a few walls, and I turned off the Apple TV, and it was connecting to the Eve Energy. So Eve has a video where they're talking about the range of this device, and I think they managed to get 67 meters from a thread from an Eve Energy router. 67 meters is huge. That's, you know, that's about 200 feet. So that's quite far. Anything previously had to be relatively close and line of sight. So I think there's something to do with this Bluetooth low energy that's so much better than what we had before. And the combination of running all this through the home app where you can control everything and set up automations. For example, if I want to know that the temperatures hit 30 degrees centigrade, I can have it turn on a light, right? I can't get notifications and that's still a weakness of the system. There are third-party apps that can do that, but you can have an automation that when the temperature is is registered above a certain point, it does something, turns on a light, makes a sound or something like that. And so the interest of this is you can finally integrate all your HomeKit devices without having this lack of communication between the different brands. Hmm. So, but this still does, of course, require the manufacturer of all these different products to make it thread compatible. Exactly. But of course, there's no interest in them not doing this. So thread, when it started out, if I understand correctly, Amazon, Google, Apple, they were all in on this Belkin, Nanoleaf, and some other brands that, that aren't as well known. Eve is one of the first ones to roll out stuff for endpoint device. They have thermostats and, and radiator things, etc. cetera. The, the advantage of this is that I know someone who has a bunch of these cheap, smart light bulbs, these Chinese brand light bulbs, and he has to launch the app for the specific light bulb on his phone to turn them on and off. Whereas with this, you can do it from the home app. You can do it with Siri. It, it's all integrated through Apple's ecosystem. Now, it's not going to be limited to Apple because Amazon and Google are part of this consortium. Thre- Thread is a sort of a royalty-free open, what would you call it, a standard. But it's not the kind where there's royalties to pay. And I think the big manufacturers have realized that it's in their interest to allow you to combine all these devices because no company makes all the different smart home devices. And what I found from my point of view as a user is you don't have to do anything to make this work. You scan the device with the app. So in my case, the Eve app, and I scanned the two devices, they have QR codes, and that's it. It's on the network. And I put a screenshot in my article on the Intego Mac security blog, and it shows that there's three routers. There's two Apple routers, and then there's another one, which is the Eve Energy. So my Apple TV, my HomePod mini, and my Eve device, and they're all just floating around. And you think about the early days of networking and you're worried about your network topology and the positioning of all your your Wi-Fi satellite, you're checking the bet and you just don't have to worry about it because these are, are very low data devices. They're only sending very limited information and you, it just works. It, it's really impressive how simple this was to set up. 
Okay. Now, in your screenshot, you show that you've, as you mentioned, you've got three different devices that show up as Apple. There's Apple Thread Router, and then there's a couple of different variations of those, and then there's also one that says Router D4. Are so what are the are these all Apple devices that are acting as routers? No. So the Router D4 is the Eve Energy. As I said, it's a smart plug that also works as a router. It's important to know that an endpoint is battery powered, so it's not going to be relaying data, but a router is something that gets power so it's plugged in, right? So again, the Apple TV 4K, the latest one, the HomePod mini, and a smart plug, these are all things that are constantly powered so they can serve as routers. Yeah. I'm always skeptical, to be honest. Anytime I see any new IoT technology, one of the first things I think is, oh, okay, well, this is yet another one that's going to like come and go, or it's going to be yet another standard that everyone's, you know, got to support or not. And this sounds a little bit promising from what you're describing and seeing the, you know, some of the big brand names that are on board with this. Uh, as you mentioned, Amazon has a bunch of devices, Belkin, Eve, I wasn't as familiar with, um, but... Uh, well, Eve is Elgato. Yeah. That's... Uh, Elgato sold their gaming stuff, and they've maintained the Elgato brand, and Eve is the rest of the company that had already done some smart home devices under the Elgato brand years ago. Right. So Eve, Google Siemens is another one. Also, Texas Instruments, they make a lot of um, embedded uh, components in in a variety of different devices. So they actually do have some pretty big companies that seem to be on board with this. So, oh, Samsung, by the way, and Qualcomm are also in there. So could be actually pretty interesting. One thing to bear in mind is that a lot of these companies are creating devices for industry. So these aren't only for smart home. You know, imagine you've got a warehouse and you've got to have sensors on different devices and you just have plugs every 20 meters or something that act as routers and create a mesh network. So we're not going to see the totality of the devices that work with this. We'll see one element of them. I would think, for example, and here I'm just speculating, a hotel that has smart locks on the doors of the hotel rooms might be able to use smart locks that use thread instead of some other system that that could be Wi-Fi or something like that. So there are a lot of potential uses in energy. I think we'll probably see them in cars and and things like that. But my, my main takeaway is that this is so easy to set up and use compared to the past where it was, you know, more complex. You had to think more carefully. And you know, I've still got that Philips Hue hub because Philips Hue is not yet thread compatible and they might not be, in other words, the hardware they have might not be thread compatible at all. So they'll have to decide in the future whether they're going to be compatible with this standard. I, the thing that I think is kind of cool about all of this is that if you already have an Apple TV 4K or a HomePod mini, you already have a thread router in your home you may not have known it. So that's kind of cool that you uh, might be getting in early on some technology that could grow and become more popular. Well, I wonder if Apple's going to really push this. And if you go onto the Apple store online, you'll see the devices and they mention that they're thread compatible. But Apple doesn't really say on the HomePod mini page, for example, it says in the tech specs, but it doesn't say yet that, hey, this, you can build your thread network with this. And I think... I, I, when the HomePod Mini came out, I remember we were discussing about that home set, and I said, this is Apple going into the smart home. It's the next area where they haven't really established a foothold. And I think we might see this in the coming year or so as Apple develops more products. It, if their devices are the ones that work as these routers, it's obvious that they, they've made an early investment 
And then we're going to see more of this in the future. Maybe Apple just feels like I do, like, let's build it in, but let's wait and see whether this really takes off before we make a big deal of advertising. Well, I think it's better of them to do that than the way they pushed 5G when they released the iPhone 12, which did not roll out very quickly, and most people couldn't get those speeds anyway. So here, they've they've set up an infrastructure that people will slowly discover, and then they can unleash it on people at a certain point, rather than raising expectations with the iPhone 12 and then disappointing people. Okay, that's enough for this week. Until next week, Josh, stay secure. All right, stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to follow us in Apple Podcasts or subscribe in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software, intego.com. <laughs>